any flower, any plant that my my grandmother and her sisters and brothers planted, it just was, you know, just flourish. And that wasn't just because it's a a, a green thumb as we as we call it, is because they had a tradition of knowing how to foster and steward the land and take amazing care of it. I'm Erin Hardnett. And I'm Amber Mitchell. And you're listening to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. In this season of Tilling the Soil, we will be exploring various conversations surrounding the environment. Today on Tilling the Soil, we are joined by Dr. Joy Banner, co-founder of The Descendants Project, to receive an update on the Wallace Grain Elevator and to hear more about their current work. Thank you so much for joining me today to give us an update on The Descendants Project and also to just kind of explore this conversation that we're having this season about the environment and especially about how the environment is a site of memory, a site of joy, but also a site of conflict. And given the conversation that you had in last season about The Descendants Project and their current efforts in Louisiana, I really felt, well, Amber and I really felt that you would really help to contribute to this conversation. But before we get into what the Descendants Project is up to and give our audience a kind of brief recap about what the Descendants Project is, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit more about your relationship with the environment and your relationship with the land that, you know, we sit on here in Wallace slash Edgar, Louisiana. In your last conversation with Amber, you mentioned, especially talking to your elders and your elders kind of shaping your understanding about the land, space, and community here. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share some of, of what your elders told you that shaped your your understanding about the space and land. Sure. And, and thank you for, for having me again to fill you in on on updates and also, you know, just about the community and and some projects that we have been working on, but also the state of, of things uh, where they stand. There's there's been a lot that's happened. So I'm I'm glad to come here and and update everyone. But first, you know, in terms of talking about my relationship to the land, it's bittersweet because I grew up in an environment that has a lot of green space. Still is a green space. So there's a lot of land. I, you know, I, I live right along the Mississippi River. So we have the levee, uh, which we use as our walking path, biking path, socializing spot. And so I grew up in, in a rural, peaceful, quiet town that is still rural and peaceful and for the most part quiet. But on the other side, the bitter part comes from the fact that we still are in what is known as as cancer rally. And and I don't like that word. I don't like that label, but we are in the 97th percentile actually in Wallace of the highest cancer risk in the country. So, you know, that certainly is there. I grew up and and still growing up next to a a plant right right across the river from us that is pumping bauxite into the air. So the aluminum producing 
facility and, and the emissions from it are, are, I think, often exceeds the limit. And it's the smell, it's a red dust that gets on everything. Yeah, and it's just, you know, there's there's black dust, white dust. And so it's a it was a beautiful community to grow up in, and it's a beautiful space to live. But the impact on the environment is very much a real, real present danger. You know, there there's been explosions. We've had alarms that have gone off from chemical releases that have forced us to run inside. So that is the bitter part of it, that we're in such a natural environment, but there is so much pollution that it's constantly under threat. It's a constant negotiation between, you know, kind of reveling and the joys that nature can bring you, but also the the reality that what people have done to the environment is directly harmful to you and the people that you care about. You also mentioned in the last interview, like you, you mentioned your elders frequently, and I'm wondering like what it is that your elders like told you about about the area that beyond your own experience, but like this familial connection to this land has made you feel so connected to the space that we're in. Well, a big part of the reason why I love my community so much is because my elders were such fantastic storytellers and they could remember so many details of their life growing up. And just so, I, you know, my elders, my community members, they didn't have what is known as the, you know, formal education. And they were extremely brilliant and resourceful. And, you know, that came from growing up as farmers and, you know, having agricultural knowledge so they could grow anything, grow any and everything of, you know, huge gardens, not not just the back, you know, your, your backyard garden, but massive gardens with squash and bell peppers and cucumbers and tomatoes. And, you know, they would raise their own pigs and their own chickens. They had a mule. They had, you know, their cows that they put out to pasture and, and you know, dairy cows. My great grandfather, he even had his own sugar cane and corn that he grew and he harvested. So, a, the agricultural knowledge and the way that people understood the land and understood how, you know, to grow things like any any flower, any plant that my my grandmother and her sisters and brothers planted, it just was, you know, just flourish. And that wasn't just because it's a, a, a green thumb, as we as we call it, is because they had a tradition of knowing how to foster and steward the land and take amazing care of it. And so I'm realizing now as a as a grown adult that the talent and the skills, it was so present in everything that they did because they passed it down. It was so natural, literally so natural to them to be engaged in a natural wor- world. You know, they understood the weather. So I'd love when my grandmother, when we would be outside and she'd look up at a cloud and she could tell you the direction that the weather was coming from, when it was going to rain, when the wind would shift. And, oh, you know, they could look at, you know, say, oh, no, that's just going to be a, a, a light shower versus a heavy thunderstorm. So that was just intimate knowledge of understanding the environment that I just thought was so enchanting. It was it was so interesting to grow up with people who had such knowledge uh, and appreciation of the natural world. And then for them there conversations grew up so much. It was about community and it was growing up, you know, as going visit their, you know, their elders and even some medicinal practices, medicinal and healing practices 
came up a lot in our conversations. The the folklore, you know, was my favorite. I love the folklore and the and the fairy tales that my grandmother would tell to me and my sister in, in Creole French. It was it just again like they were such wonderful storytellers that me and me and my sister just grew up captivated. I'm still captivated by it all. Yeah, definitely. Honestly, sitting at the feet of of elders is one of the most wonderful things anyone can experience, in my opinion. And I think that just going back to that sentiment of like bittersweetness, because Louisiana generally and um, this area of Louisiana specifically has, you know, such truncated life expectancies because of these environmental hazards, like we lose those elders early. Like I have no more grandparents. Mm. And, you know, my grandparents also had like this, this environmental knowledge. Like my grandmother loved to garden. My grandfather, um, like he grew these like really wonderful tomatoes. Right. And my mom would always want like that sack of tomatoes that my grandfather would like give her whenever we returned here from Georgia. And it is very bittersweet because I think my generation, even like my mother's generation, did not necessarily get that knowledge fully imparted onto them because like there was, you know, there is currently kind of like this lack of interest in having a relationship with the environment and cultivating that intimate knowledge of the weather, of gardening. But it is something that is so fulfilling and kind of like lets you know that you're part of of something bigger. And doesn't force you just to focus on the way that the environment harms you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for um, sharing what what you learned from your elders. It, it really, it, it brings up a lot for me as well. And like what the Descendants Project is doing now is kind of like trying to preserve those memories, right? Trying to like make it so that those memories can be given to coming generations. And I'm wondering now if you can remind our audience what the Descendants Project is and like what your mission is. Yes. So coming from that great love of our community, my sister Joe and I, you know, we always wanted to protect and, and preserve. And because again, it was, it was, it's such, you know, I call my community the great love of my life and I just want to preserve it. And, you know, alongside of it is, of course, this knowledge that we have industry alongside of us that is consistently encroaching upon our land and in our communities. And Joe and I, being lovers of history and heritage, felt that if we help to cultivate and nourish the heritage and tourism industry, what a great way to preserve the history and to prevent this industrial encroachment. The only problem is that, you know, being in the midst of, you know, we talked about Cancer Rally, but we also, this area is also known as plantation country. So history and heritage for us is often in a context of plantations. And so Joe and I, our our mission for the Descendants Project comes from something very personal in the sense of we wanted to make sure that we had a space and a telling of our own history that people understood that the history of this area was not always on a plantation. There's a rich and vibrant history and culture that exists off of plantation grounds. We certainly believe that the narratives, you know, within a lot of plantation spaces needed to address, you know, the legacies of slavery. But we also felt too that there is this, you know, economic engine of tourism that Black people were not being 
allowed into. You know, there's a lot of there is still a lot of gatekeeping around it, even though the you know ex extraction of of black culture, you know, in New Orleans spaces and even in these spaces is very much present. Black business owners or people interested in black history were not being given the same resources, time and attention that other sites and other people were. And so um, we started a Descendants Project as a nonprofit to center, you know, the, the Black stories and the Black, you know, community. And alongside of the emergence of the Descendants Project as an organization came this battle with the Greenfield Grain Terminal Project that is threatening to come in and destroy all of that history with the massive 250-acre facility that would dump 80 tons of pollution on top of us. And the, between the traffic, the noise, the light, and just the, the danger, you know, uh, green terminals are explosive. So living with even more danger, we uh, absorbed that fight, in a sense, into the Descendants Project, which, made that, which meant that the environmental component and the environmental racism component of it is, emerged as one of the top of line priorities for the Descendants Project. So to, to make a long story, story short, I, we are the intersection of historic preservation of Black descended community rights and environmental justice. And the way all of those different parts of the system can play together to produce positive change. Definitely. The, the Descendants Project is definitely so invested in like the immediacy of what descendant communities are are experiencing now while also being invested in in the histories that descendants communities kind of carry. And I'm wondering also if, so you mentioned this grain terminal, this Greenfield, Louisiana LLC grain terminal. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit more background on that terminal, because I know that it is you know, it was even made possible for that green terminal to be proposed as a result of, you know, these kind of corrupt government practices that rezoned the area for heavy industry. So can you give us a bit more background on that? Sure. Well, like you mentioned, it, the audience may be more familiar with Formosa and um, Rye St. James that is in St. James, Louisiana, it, it, which is our neighboring parish to St. John, to St. John the Baptist. And they have been fighting to stop Formosa from creating the largest industrial facility in the country. This thing is massive. But what most people don't know is that Formosa, its beginnings, its inklings in Louisiana started right here on a land where the grain terminal is proposed to be located. 30 years ago, Formosa came in with the promises of jobs, economic development, but it would mean for us the destruction of our community. We were told that we would have to leave. So we were intended, we were expected or no planning to leave. We didn't know, we didn't think that we can, we could fight it. And so Formosa was very insidiously targeting our community, like meeting with the meeting with those same elders that I, I just told you about, meeting with them during the day while our parents were at work. And so the people that are like now my age and you know in, in their forties did not have the full information. They always felt flat footed in this fight. Whereas me and my sister, when we used to get from the we used to um, get off the school bus and and go in and spend the 
evening with my grandparents until my mom got home. So it was about an hour or so that we would spend with my grandparents and we spend it outside. Formosa had their agents literally coming in, targeting our, you know, our community moments and, and saying like, I know that you all have to move, like you all, you have no choice, but we can protect you. We can help you out. Like we can make sure you get the most money for your houses. So it's very insidious what happened, but it, the parish president at the time, we found out later had taken a bribe to rezone it, residential land to industrial, which was needed for, for most of to come through. And that along with community fighting, fighting back, and several other pieces of the puzzle, Formosa, the project wasn't sustainable. And they left. And we thought we, they had gone for good. And then 30 years later, they popped up in St. James. Anyway, it was, it is that zoning decision that made it possible for Greenfield to target this land, the same land again. Right. And along the way, um, we the Descendants Project has sued, is currently in litigation over the zoning of that land, we'll hear any day now whether it's going to, whether the land will be reversed back to residential. Well, our argument is that it never was industrial. The ordinance was illegal, but there's a lot of interesting things that have happened along the way. Speaking of corruption, there, there are documents missing. There are maps missing. Greenfield themselves turned in a map that had the land listed as residential. So it's all, I mean, it's all the things, all the things that you would expect in your best crime, true crime podcast. So yeah, so we are we are still in the middle of that fight. But what it comes down to really, it is it's it's racism. It's racism at its most basic structural form, even beyond the zoning around black communities. What is it what this is resting on is our communities that are black and rural are considered unvaluable that we are, we're poor, we're miserable, we're not really contributing anything to society, we're backwards, time has forgotten about us. And as of, as because of that, who cares if this plant comes in and pollutes and kills us and destroys our quality of life? Because I mean, what more can we expect anyway? We're poor and miserable and black, so you know we should feel lucky that these plants come in and and at least give us a chance, right, to get that to get that good job. And everything, these decisions, the ability for these companies to come in and negotiate with our political leaders and you know, negotiate, you know, and get backing sometimes of the governors, of people at you know, at the national level, is all predicated on this assumption or this disrespect for black life outside of labor. Right. We're not just allowed to exist and be happy and be peaceful. I think we're always judged for like if you're a black person, it's like, what are you contributing to society? You know, like, oh, because you're probably on a system. You're probably on welfare. And how many times that comment comes up about like we're talking about environmental justice and protecting our community. I have we've had like uh, comments on our post that's like, well, yeah, well, you know, y'all probably don't want it because y'all just want to live off the system and, and let the rest of us do the work for you. Well, how the hell does that come into a conversation about the environment, right? And people saying they want to protect their homes and their property. So you don't have to scratch, scratch very hard to see this layer of racism that's built right under the surface. 
And it makes it so easy for us to be targeted by these companies that come in with the veil of white saviorship, despite the fact that we didn't ask for their help, we didn't say that we needed it. And they get government assistance, they get financial assistance, they get tax dollars. But when we want it, if we want it, it's welfare. But when they get it, it's incentives. So yeah, I'll end there. Sorry for that ramble, but... (laughs) No, I was I was following right along with you. And like, it also just reminds me of the way that like plantations during slavery, like, there was this argument that like, the plantation environment was good for black people. You know, there was this argument that like, it exposed black people to Christianity, like it helped to save like the quote unquote, like African heathen, which is is so incredibly insidious and it's like the same kind of idea that like greenfield and these other industries have in louisiana that like they're coming in to bring in jobs because like labor is in some way edifying to the character of yes. of everyone like like labor is the only thing that gives you value which we know is not true we yes. know that this is just based off of like this like capitalist idea that you know money is all that matters But at the end of the day, our health matters, like the environment matters. And like this grain terminal, for example, will like release dust into the air, right? And like dust, it will will, like increase your, the possibility of having asthma, of having COPD, of having just like a number of health impacts up into lung cancer. And the idea that money and like the edifying power of work is worth all of that is is yes. simply untrue it's like based on racism it's based on white supremacy and it's not that far removed from these kind of ideals that bolstered the slaveocracy in america it's really not even a hop a skip and a jump away like it's right there so like you mentioned the 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 legal action that you've been taking against greenfield to one have the the land not even rezoned to have it like unrezoned because let's not get it twisted. It was residential land first. So can you talk us through a little bit more of the progression of the legal action that you've been taking? Yeah. So one lawsuit has morphed into about four four or five, just to, just to give you an idea of with the Descendants Project and, and with, we also have another community group called Stop the Wallace Green Elevator. Our goal is not just about stopping Greenfield. The reason why Greenfield is here is because we have a system that is broken and it's corrupt. And with Louisiana and in the St. John Parish, I'm going to make a t-shirt that says corruption is not cute, right? Because people think that the the corruption oh that's just louisiana you know that's that's just the way y'all do in louisiana oh ha 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 well you know and it's like it's novel you know people think it's funny you know and they they just dismiss it you know corruption is killing us it's literally the reason why these plants are getting cited next to us and it's having an impact on our health you know and and beyond just the health because you know as much as important obviously as health is what about just the fact that I want to be able to go outside and enjoy sitting outside with my family members, right? So going back to that idea of Black people only being appreciated for you know their physicality or what they could physically contribute, the idea that I can 
you know, sit back and have leisure time with my family, you know, and like the, the idea of black people just just resting, you know, that's why I think that re the resistance of black rest is so important because we are always forced to think that we need to be laboring, need to be doing something, or that plant can't be there because it's gonna it's gonna take away from our bodies, but like, hey, it's gonna take away from my peace of mind too. It's gonna take away from my social aspects, my my emotional well-being. Those are important too. But going back to your question, in terms of uh, defeating the system, our lawsuit was never against Greenfield. It was about the parish and the zoning. Greenfield intervened and, and were allowed to, and, and we knew they were, so that wasn't a, that wasn't a big deal. But at the same time, they chose this fight. They chose this legal battle because it really it really wasn't technically about them. So we are we sued for the the zoning. We've also through the two lane environmental law clinic. Uh, we have them representing us on various permits that Greenfield has applied for. And we, believe it or not, you know, the, the information, the data that they're putting in in their in their permit applications is either the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality should have had questions about it. Or there's some things where it's like, wow, you knew you saw the amount that 80 tons of particulate matter was going to be dumped in this community, yet you went ahead and gave them a minor source air permit without any community input at all. So it's those things that, you know, Tulane has been wonderful at, at catching. Greenfield, in coordination with the Port of South Louisiana, has been able to finagle a $200 million tax deal over the course of 30 years. Taxes that we, that are taken from our would be taken from our school, from our parish, and from the sheriff's office, right? With very little paperwork, with very little conversation, we are suing the Port of South Louisiana because there was information that should have been that should have been publicly available through public meetings, and it wasn't. We're also challenging the right of them to get a two hundred million dollar tax deal. So we so that's two separate lawsuits. We had an ongoing case with the EPA, um, a formal complaint process through LDEQ, but unfortunately the EPA decided to close that case. So we're working through that process. And then the, and also, I don't. this is not technically a legal process, but we are part of what's called the Section 106 consulting process. So the Corps of Engineers is the federal body that will be providing the permit for Greenfield, providing or denying. And so we appealed to them that we should be a part of that process by what is called the National Historic Preservation Act, which is Section 106. And so we appealed to them to be a part of the process. And they took us, A, they decided that, yes, there, was, there needed to be a formal review of uh, preservation assets and that we as a community deserve to be at the table. And that was because it was so controversial and we kicked up so much dust that, you know, we we sort of forced them into that process. That's where we are so far. I say so far because as people don't turn in documents through discovery or through public records requests, you know, there might have to be some additional lawsuits. We'll see. We'll see for sure. And it, like you were saying, there's just like this kind of profound irony in that Greenfield and other industries say that they're bringing jobs, but then they get a $200 million tax break. Like that, there is no community benefit as it turns out, because no. you're taking away from community resources. And we don't get the jobs anyway. 
Right. That is the biggest. And there's some there's some some new research coming out soon. And I'm so happy for it. I am I can't tell you how ecstatic I am for someone to prove what the numbers, what we have been saying. Black people aren't getting the jobs, right? In the minute, you know, we are a disadvantaged community. We're coming in, we're bringing jobs. And the type of data that Greenfield and other companies provide to our the, the Office of Economic Development, which is a joke. Louisiana Economic Development Secretary is absolutely pro-industry. He is a joke. Anyone can come in and say, just say, just put a sentence. We are we're providing a job, one job. They don't resource, they don't look at it, don't research it, and it just clears the way. So there is no pushback from economic development. But we as a black community, we've been seeing that. All of these jobs are promised, but lo and behold, after we've given up all of our land, we've given up all of you know the peace and quiet of our community, we as a community aren't good enough to fulfill these jobs. And then the alternative solution is, okay, well, we'll, we'll put a training program directly in your school, right? So now you have this industrial company or any company that has infiltrated inside your kids curriculum and as majority black schools that's allowed to happen but what would happen if you if they went to a predominantly white wealthy school and said we want to put a program for grain terminals we want to make that part of your child's curriculum they would get laughed out the building it would not be good enough for their children like no my kid is going to be a doctor my kid is going to be a lawyer an engineer i can't have my kid going to grain you know grain terminal training not that there's anything wrong with it i mean whatever people want to do i'm fine but it's just that would not be allowed in in schools and it would be allowed in our schools and also, if we're being serious, industry jobs, like jobs in plants, are dangerous. So it's it's funneling Black children to jobs that like put them at increased risk of occupational harm and mm-hmm. also, you know, like health harm. Because <laughs> if a grain terminal releases grain dust to the surrounding area and it can like cause lung cancer for like miles radiuses around it imagine what is happening to people who are actually working inside of of that plant yes if we're being serious the jobs that these industries are purportedly bringing to to the community are not safe jobs they're not jobs that are sustainable they're jobs that continue to shorten the lives of community members which is just like a whole other layer on top of (laughs) everything else you know just first of all my parents worked in industry so when i talk about industry is not because i have this hatred of industry you would not believe how enmeshed my identity and my family's identity is in industry. Like it is, I, I, my mom had an old, um, she saved an old newsletter from when, when she was working. And in the newsletter, like there was a, a safety quality day um, at the plant. So we were all there at the plant. There was a clown, you know, here is, you know, here is like a, a, a seven-year-old me, you know, looking at a clown. My brother was in a newsletter. Both of my brothers was in a newsletter. My mom was in it. My dad was like the back page because he was restoring a car. So that was in a, in a newsletter. And like, that is our, my identity. 
you know, it's so much industry. But at the same time, like my parents were real and are real about industry and how dangerous it is. Like they've had to run from explosions. You know, they've lost people, you know, through the release of chemicals at the at the plant. Most of the people that my mom retired with, she's like one of a few people that are still living. And she's in her, you know, in her late 70s now, right? They understand that this is a dangerous, that these are very dangerous jobs, but nobody wants to admit that these jobs terrify them. But I, 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 can't, I can't help but what I see in Louisiana culture is this big, tough guy. I can work in the plant. I'm not scared of the health impacts. I'm going to drive around in my big truck, you know, and as long as I can go fishing on, on, a, on a weekend, then I'm, I'm good with the dangers. And that's not the truth. I, I know of someone who works in a plant, had a very bad um, incident that happened, and as a result, experienced anxiety from it and, and didn't say, and, and that's the part of, of working in an industry that you don't hear, but it certainly is there and it's certainly making and even, more, even more health impacts on our community. Yeah. And this is the last tangent that I'll bring us down before I like circle back to the, the actual interview question. But because Louisiana is such a litigious state, is like a state where you drive down the highway and all you see is like personal injury lawyer advertisements. All of this is like this, this feeding ecosystem where you get injured in the plant, you get a personal injury lawyer, you get workers comp and so like all of the these these powers that are kind of in the ears of politicians just continue to make the lives of black people worse. And yeah, that that's the last I'll say on that, but Absolutely. like I myself because my family is from Louisiana, I know like my family members have been part of like class action lawsuits as a result of harm that has befallen them for like work related incidents. And the Descendants Project is absolutely correct in saying that that is not good enough. We want, like, what kind of jobs do we want? We want jobs that are sustainable. We want jobs that, like, do not harm us, that do not harm our environment, and that allow us to, like, look forward into the future, allow us to imagine a future for, for you know, our future children. So, yeah, I hear you on that one. <laughs> also... In, in regards to legal action, I'm wondering if you could offer any advice to other descendant communities in terms of finding legal representation to help advocate for themselves. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So we are very fortunate to have Tulane Environmental Law Clinic, and we're in the environmental law clinic, but Tulane has about 10 different clinics on 10 different subjects, everything from free speech to the rights of, of people that have been through the carceral system um, or in, in the carceral system. They work with people and, and have worked, you know, to get people free. There's a lot of clinics within Tulane. So my my I guess my broader advice would be to see if there are clinics set up at your universities through their law program. I, I can't emphasize how much, how wonderful it's been to work with them. And it's students that are working, but they're also under the direction and supervision of practicing attorneys. Just knowing that the that students are learning about what's happening and they are getting the training to be able to help community members, it's very satisfying and gratifying. And they, and they work tremendously hard. My other recommendation 
Earth Justice is a, a, another entity that's representing us in a lawsuit against the bauxite producing producing plant. Forgot to mention them earlier. Um, the Center for Constitutional Rights is who we work with for the zoning. If there is a community group that are acting in environmental rights or any any community organization that is doing that work, start with them. They know someone that is either representing them or is representing someone that that they are in community with. I was really surprised, pleasantly so, how many people and how many organizations are offering pro bono legal support for our cases. I had no idea. Um, and like you said, going back to the idea of what lawyers look like, when I think of a lawyer, and I think when many people in our community think of attorneys, it is for the ambulance chasing, I'm not really hurt, but I'm going to get a big pay payday out of it. That's the way that it's framed, right? Or it's in a situation where you are, you are in if you are in in a defense situation where you need a lawyer in your defense, but we forget about lawyering for our rights and how that's our civil rights and, and environmental rights and and so that has really opened up my eyes and my appreciation for the for the legal profession. Absolutely, for sure. Like so many of us forget that so many civil rights battles happen in the courtroom. Like, yes, it happened on the streets, but it also happened in the courtroom. And like both of those things happening in tandem is how we got to where we are today, which is not far enough, but right. <laughs> which is nowhere near far enough. But yeah, no, things do have have to happen in the courtroom. Granted, the Supreme Court, they're on some foolishness. So let's but you know what? They I I got you know, and I know this is you know, as we're listening to this, as we're taping this uh, podcast and the Supreme Court decision surrounding affirmative action in in universities. But I love the fact that legacy is being brought up. I'm so happy that that is being brought up. Like, finally, we get to have that real conversation, you know, about what what it looks like, how things get framed for the majority and how to get framed for us is the same thing that's happening when, you know, these companies get an incentive in taxes and they need government support and financial assistance. And oh, right. That's just that's just it makes sense in a business in a business world, whereas we ask for it. And it's and again, it's welfare. So I love when these systems when a system actually turns on itself, <laughs> you know, we have to contend with some things. <laughs> Yeah, it it is just kind of like a poetic justice almost. <laughs> so circling back to kind of what projects the Dissonance Project has in the works, y'all have been outside, y'all have really been out here. And I'm wondering if you can speak to what y'all have been doing in addition to fighting the, for this rezoning or unrezoning. Yeah, so thank you. One of our, our our bigger missions and objectives, we have, have been doing um, a lot of work with the in the United Nations space. And so I, I, you know, I, I just read about Malcolm X's advocacy at the UN for human rights. And I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, I'm very, I don't know a lot about it, but I, I'd like to think that we are following in, in his tradition and working with the world to shine a light on the United States 
And, you know, and the fact that as the United States, as we purport to be the leader in so many things, and we are the leader, that we have to clean up our own house. And so um, my sister and I, we took part of the Convention on the Eradication of, of Racial Discrimination, and we spoke on environmental racism. We also are working with UNESCO to become part of their routes of enslaved peoples. Now that the United States is back in UNESCO, we we know want to work with them for this area becoming part of its world cultural heritage site listings. My sister is is more actively than not than I am a part of the plastics negotiation treaty at a, glo- a global level because the petrochemicals that are here is the feed for plastics. Right. So as we're talking about plastic pollution and what you're going to do with the plastic bottles, we are like, wait a minute, just recycling the plastic bottles is not going to help because A, we're not recycling nearly enough to contend with the production of plastic. And by the way, is the production of plastic in those chemicals that's harming our area specifically. And oh yeah, when you recycle those plastics, guess where they get recycled at? In communities that look like ours. So you're breaking down those harmful chemicals again, and it's repoisoning our communities. So we've been very vocal in that space. Joe and I are headed back to Geneva next week for part of their chemicals. There's a a chemicals conference. But on the ground, what we are most excited about is we we kicked off our first real sponsorship of of the archaeological field school that's taking place at Evergreen, where um, eight uh, college students came in with three professors supervising them and excavated the area in front of and surrounding slave cabins at Evergreen. And through the Descendants Project, we were able to support them and house them in a restored house that we have. So we housed eight students and supported their program in a larger way than we were expecting, even though we were glad to do it, because they were based in Florida and a lot of their funding got cut because Florida. But we we stepped in and through generous donation and support from actually Steven Spielberg's foundation, the Hearthland Foundation, we reached out to him and, and said, hey, it was great to meet you. We have archaeological work and, you know, if no, if anyone should be interested in the archaeology um, profession, it would be, you know, Mr. Spielberg and, and company. But we do all of that in the development and creation of alternative careers for our community members and for our children to be exposed to an experience that there's so much like there's adventure in your own backyard, adventure and it's excitement. You know, I think as a kid, had someone had an archaeological field school right outside my my door, that would have been me. You know, I'm that nerd. <laughs> that would have been all in it. I'm still in it. So we're we're working to expand that program. We're also as part of the historic preservation and National Trust for Historic Preservation's work you know, in, in support of us uh, you know, against the Greenfield Terminal, also along with National Park Service in getting this area designated as a National Historic Landmark. We're identifying historic houses and historic structures that are owned by Black community members, such as ourselves. And how do we support? How do we get those structures recognized? So that we could all have, you know, the incentives to protect those houses and weatherize those homes. And how do we create careers around historic preservation practices and construction? How do we create general contractors and and real estate agents, right? Realtors who are knowledgeable of historic property space. So, yeah, there's so many 
opportunities that we would like to pursue in terms of, of diverse career choices and creative career choices for our community members. For sure. And I'm excited to see where the Descendants Project goes from here. I'm also wondering if you can give us an update on Many Waters. One, first tell the audience what it is, and then give us a little update on where things are. So Many Waters is the headquarters of the Descendants Project, but originally it is a plantation house from 1806. We had it moved to our property about 15, 20 years ago. So it's been sitting there for a while, unrestored. Me and Joe found out that we are descended from the people that inhabited that house. So we are using that space. We are decolonizing it instead of it being a plantation space for the purposes of of extraction. It is now going to be our headquarters and a, a community space. So housed within it. And in terms of the update we have, we are in process of drawing up the final construction plans. And so we have like the spaces labeled out, like our genealogy lab, our cemeteries, unmarked and unidentified cemeteries lab is, you know, is marked and we have the spaces identified. So yeah, we should begin. I I think we should uh, be breaking ground on its renovation in the next couple of months. So um, now we're working with the architect and a contractor to get the ball rolling on that. That is so exciting. I'm so excited for y'all. And then kind of the final question, unless Amber has additional things to add, can you kind of tell our audience how they can support the Descendants Project? So the Descendants Project, you know, for all of all of these ideas we are coming up with <laughs> and that um, we're, and our community is coming up with donations to support our projects and donations to support our education programs. Our outreach programs are always very much, you know, appreciated. But in in addition to that, we uh, currently we have a, a petition out to the Corps of Engineers to deny Greenfield's permit. Um, so any anyone you know signing that petition and sharing it would be would be very helpful. Visiting our website thedescendantsproject.org um, and seeing what other actions can be taken. You know, a lot of times we, you know, uh, route our visitors to, again, sign petitions or submit public comments to the EPA or to, you know, federal or state permitting bodies, you know, in support of protection of our communities. Those public comments are very, very important. As we become more involved in, you know, and at least understanding legislatively what is what's happening and the way permitting um, works and the way that legislature gets authored and gets passed, being aware and issuing public comments regarding those uh, regarding those topics are very very important. Amazing, and all of that information we will put in the description. So thank you again so much for joining us. I very much enjoyed our conversation, and I hope to speak to you again. <laughs> always is a great conversation and whatever I can do to help support, just let me know. Thank you for tuning in to Tilling the Soil. For more information on the podcast or Whitney Plantation, go to WhitneyPlantation.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. All the handles can be found in the description. Thanks for listening.